0: Yeah, I put on I put on a real shirt today for this.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah. We got the, uh, the open collar thing going on. You got, you got to unbutton, yeah, you gotta unbutton
0: one button lower and you're like, yes. We're <laughs>
1: uh, a man of <laughs> leisure.
0: Yes. We can be yes. we could be uh, we can be <laughs>
2: <laughs> Are you recording this? You are recording this. <laughs> <laughs> Fucker. Delete that. <laughs> hello. Hello, hello, hello. But look at that. It says default microphone here. Maybe maybe I'll do it too. How do I it doesn't let me change?
0: Don't don't change Andrew you're perfect the way you are.
2: Thank you sir. I love you me. too.
1: Hello barbarians and welcome to the third episode of the LLB podcast Low Level Barbarians from Asia on Asia with debate and discussion on trending topics with our usual host the man of the high ground Dave Chang. Hey guys. Donggun the information super connector. Hello, Andrew G, the master debater, and me, Alex, to pick your host of EOA. For the first topic today, we are going to talk about the AirAsia super app. Uh, so there's a clear backstory. AirAsia is the largest low-cost carrier in Asia, probably. Uh, it's top in the world. They are trying to build a super app, which includes Teleport, their logistics arm, Rideshare. I'm not sure if they made investments there, but they've talked about it uh, publicly, plans there. Food, they've bought Gojek Thailand and DeliverEat in Malaysia. And they have Big Pay, which is their financial arm. I think the story is in two parts: their core business recovery. So it's very clear that during COVID their business tanked. No one's flying. They had to recapitalize, um, do some interesting stuff to finance their current operations. So that really depends on the d- d- duration of COVID versus how well capitalized they are. And then for the second part, you know, for the super app, their ability to execute on a tech-driven business. Um, it's clear that you know, investors only care about their core business. Share prices have been depressed. But if you look at the comparables like Ryanair, Southwest Airlines, all these stock prices have made a full recovery. Of course, they kind of dip back because of the Delta variant. Um, but you know, it's, it's, people are more bullish versus where Asia is in terms of sentiment. Uh, and if you think about their super app, right, that depends on their technological know-how, uh, if they have enough money to build it out. Competition, talent retention, and the culture around that, and also regulation. So for, for me, the bull case, right? Uh, Setter's paribus, despite very complex cap table structures, the opacity of some of their companies in the region, um, along with, you know, nothing changes with Tony's ability to manage all the politicians and getting licenses for the airports. I think there's a very bull case on the pure TAM growth, the total market that grows as travel recovers and Asia becomes more middle-class people more travel. And that's a very big profitable machine with a big brand moat around it. Uh, so, you know, people with deep value value investing long-term, they, they are pretty bullish on this story. And I think that bodes well if this recovery does happen and COVID doesn't kind of kill the whole thing where there's a good cash cow machine to kind of fund their actual super app ambitions. But of course, you know, the bear case is that COVID persists longer. There's, cap tables is too complex the financing is just too aggressive they collapse they have to do chapter 11 or whatever the chapter 11 is in asia or they're not competent enough to build out the super app that they want to build they can't retain the talent or make it happen so thoughts anyone dave do you you have an opinion on AirAsia? i believe after reviewing their q1 results um
0: yeah i do i, I think as you correctly pointed out I think it's impossible to talk about their super app uh, ambitions without talking about the core um, airline business. Um, and, you know, as everyone is aware, obviously uh, COVID continues to have uh, a deep depressing impact on the airline industry in general. But I, I think it behooves us to go over some of their headline stats, right? So their Q1 uh, 21 results just came out, uh, I think, two weeks ago. And I think there's some really interesting things in there, right? So, so there, the Q1 combined revenue uh, was only 116 million ringgit. Uh, so, for those of you in America, that's like a 25 30 million US dollars, right? Um, and and you have to match that uh, against their net operating loss. So, airlines, it is a little bit tricky uh, how the accounting and financial reporting works for airlines. So. Uh, basically, what happens is your leasing obligation. So, Air Asia is an asset like business in the sense that they don't own their planes; they essentially lease their planes, um, and and that's how they work, right? So. So the way that it works in financial reporting is the leasing obligations and the financial uh, payment obligations uh, for those uh, leasing contracts don't come out of EBIT. So if you look at their pure EBIT, their EBIT is actually not that bad. Their EBIT is like, I think, negative 217 million uh, ringgit. But if you actually add, what you really should look at is their net operating loss. And that is a really uh, ugly looking number. So their net operating loss in Q1 2021 was 793 million ringgit. So 200 million U.S. dollars, right? So it's essentially uh, six to seven times what the actual revenue, uh, you know, is. Um, and then, so the question really is: Okay, so you know, this is a scenario. This is their business performance. How much cash and how much runway do they have, right? And I did a bit of back at the envelope math, and as of Q121, uh, they had 447 million ringgit in cash equivalents on their balance sheets. Uh, they had put out a private placement for about 470 million ringgit, which was closed in Q1 2021. So it's unclear to me whether that 470 million private placement was accounted for in their cash balance at the end, but let's just say that it's not. So we just add that to uh, their cash balance. So that gives us approximately like 900 million. Uh, They're also then out uh, doing a rights issue looking to raise another 600 million to 1 billion ringgit. And then they have another 1 billion uh, in loans, uh, in debt financing that they're trying to raise. So all told, we're looking at, you know, somewhere between 2.5 to 3 billion ringgit in cash uh, for a business that's burning 800 million a quarter, right? So, I mean, everyone here can do the math. That gives you, I don't know, somewhere between three to four quarters of runway assuming these conditions uh, persist, which to me... Is pretty thin, so again, that's just their core business, right? Yeah. And if we look at their, their their super app business, so their super app business, uh, AirAsia, it's called AirAsia Digital. That's the umbrella for this entire thing, and they actually did break out the performance of AirAsia Digital. Uh, you have to dig into the Q1 reports, but it's on like page twenty three for those of you who want. to should go look at it. Um, and as Alex pointed out, they basically split up into three segments. Uh, AirAsia Digital is Teleport, which is their logistics arm the AirAsia super app, uh, which is sort of like uh, food, e-commerce, right share. Uh, ride share, it's a catch-all. and then they have big pay group, right? Uh, and then they have some other AirAsia digital entities that they bucket on they're very it's not clear what those actually are uh, and they're not really large uh, line items anyway. So uh, the super app is doing in Q1, they did looking at this around 120 million ringgit in, in revenue right uh but like almost all of that uh in so 93 million of that 120 is teleport so that's teleport still by far the largest uh part of that business and actually the teleport business shrank year over year so in q1 2020 it was actually 150 million uh ringgit in revenue so it's actually taken a substantial haircut and that's mostly from the drop in international freight and i think uh to the reason we're going to talk about this now is the digital business, which is their um, the super app, sorry, segment of the digital business, uh, which is what we're sort of initiating this conversation. Uh, this entire business only did 10 million ringgit in revenue uh, for the entire quarter. Uh, and that is up uh, from 6 million year over year. So to me, these are pretty um, anemic numbers. And the way that I'm sort of looking at these acquisitions that the group is doing is essentially he's trying to cobble together um, revenue from all these disparate sources to to create a more convincing uh, investor story for when he tries to shop it out to the you know, mainstream investors or the public markets. So um, in, in general, I guess what I'm trying to say is like this seems to be like a very high wire act that he's trying to pull off. I mean, Tony Fernandez is obviously a very talented businessman, very skilled entrepreneur and operator, but, you know, trying to keep his core business afloat while at the same time, simultaneously sort of showing uh, revenue growth uh, on his digital business. It just seems like it's a lot of balls to be juggling at the same time. Uh, And, you know, I think that would be, uh, that's a very, very difficult task for any CEO uh, to, to, to manage. So I would be, um, very impressed i guess if if you managed to pull this off
3: hey uh out of curiosity how do they recognize revenue so you mentioned about teleport and you mentioned about super app and how, how does how does the revenue get recognized what exactly is the teleport revenue
0: so I, I, don't, I didn't dig into the Q1, but as I understand, teleport um, is actually mostly international logistics. So it's like, from what I believe, it's like 70-30. So 70% is international air freight and 30% is like local uh, last mile stuff.
1: So, so essentially it's like an Aramex. So I could approach them as a 3PL. And I could send my parcels to them, and they'll ship fly it across the world. Essentially, well, I mean, for example, like we
0: do use AirAsia for some uh, for one of our Korean beauty businesses Mm. that does international uh, freight forwarding. Uh, We we use that's one of our uh, providers, right? Or we use some of their capacity for
3: our transport. Yeah, so basically like a freight forwarder. Yeah, it's a, free, it's a it's a,
0: it's an international freight. So like, logistics value, business. yeah, it's a logistics business. So, so asking okay. for like a, a 10x revenue multiple on um, a logistics business uh, or, or on a super app, that's primarily a logistics business uh, seems to be, um, you need to be a very good salesman to do that.
1: Right. What's also fascinating is that, is that they, you mentioned they leased their planes and and we were talking about this earlier uh, off the podcast was that. Because most of their leases are small small planes and small flights, their actual cargo space and utilization is probably very low compared to a big long-haul fleet who actually owns it and gets you know, an actual return over time as the assets depreciate, right?
3: Yep, yep, yep. And also for, for larger planes, it's, it, it's um, I mean, we, we tear the the seats away. It's actually a fairly significant amount of space that, that, that you can use for cargo. And for the smaller planes, it's... It, so we did some work for one of the uh, Indonesian airlines a few years ago um, to look at, I mean, how they can turn their excess uh, capacity in the cargo space um, into a logistic company. But, uh, but the thing yeah. is that it w- it's quite hard. I mean, you really don't have much space um, to to do it big. Um, I, and I think the point about freight forwarder, uh, freight forward is essentially a travel agent, right? So so basically, uh, I, think, I think for, for AirAsia's point of view, uh, they can connect you with uh their i mean they can book their own sort of space for you but probably they can do third parties as well so so if we say that they're like travel agent i mean if they recognize revenue as what i mean if you if you sell, sell you um i don't know um 10, $10 million dollars worth of uh, uh worth of like you no know, shipping charges and do they do they recognize this 10 million as revenue or do, or do they recognize their commission which is probably i don't know 1.5 or 2 million as uh, as revenue so you're making a GMV argument, right? If yeah, kind of yeah.
1: GMV versus, I mean because that's that's if they're trying to build a super app, they're going to try and raise on GMV. Hmm. Uh, but if they're a public company, they have to report actual revenue first, you hmm. know, in the yep, IFRS yep. gap kind yep, of way.
3: Yep. I, I mean, for me, it's just uh, when I look at revenue numbers, uh, 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 just just sometimes it's uh, it's difficult to understand exactly what the, what they're, they're looking at true. as revenue, yeah. right? Um, yeah. How how is Fernandez uh, as a person? I mean, I've, I've I've watched him on TV, I've listened to him on to him on uh, Clubhouse. I've not seen him in person, and obviously recently there has been a, a bit of news of him probably not paying attention um, at at the internal <laughs> town hall. and it sort of went viral. And uh, then oh, you yes. have you have tech in Asia writing like reports saying that oh is the culture toxic. We spoke to ex employees, the current employees, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we got someone who who who, who was telling us on our wechat platform so probably someone in, uh, from china but working either in malaysia or uh, or thailand he said um tony fernandez look i mean the problem that you you, you see on on a town hall is the list of his problems and uh, and uh, and actually the whole company find finds that person who got ridiculous annoying but they just didn't have the right way to deal with her um and, uh, and he said Tony's biggest problem is that he drinks while at work. So, so this is something that I, I, I can't really <laughs> verify.
1: Yeah. I and mean, I, Only anecdotally, all of us have friends who somehow been pulled to AirAsia one way or another okay. from one of their many arms, right? And I only know that retention, like I'm just looking at raw numbers, right? Retention, they don't last long. One year, two years. So there is an actual retention problem, and that's one of the points I mentioned, right? Mm. Ability to retain tension, and that speaks to their super app ambitions. You need to retain that talent to, you know, if you want to build long term. So that's what I could note there. I I don't know him personally; I've never spoke to him, so I can't say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's a couple ways to think about this question, right? I mean, I think you know, if you're trying to value a company, there's always there's usually two ways to do it, right? One is like. Based off the strength of your PL and your balance sheet. So that's just a straightforward, like, numerically driven exercise. You do this kind of cash flow, assets, whatever, right? And then the other way is um, sort of like a more narrative-driven approach, which we've seen in the U.S., you know, like Elon Musk uh, for years basically built his business uh, and fund- fundraise on the back of, of sort of like, um, you know, his, his personal story and his ambitions. And it was a beautiful story, right? Everyone wanted to be part of it. And I think this is going to be a unique challenge uh, for Tony Fernandez in the, in the vis-a-vis, you know, he is sort of known as, he, he, he's marketed himself as sort of this, um, you know, superstar entrepreneur of Southeast Asia. And I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that, you know, credit, give him what credit is due or do what credit is given. He's actually achieved a lot. But I think, like, you know, if he's trying to uh, list, uh, go via SPAC listing in the U.S., um, he doesn't have that same brand um, connotation in the U.S. that he does in, yeah. in Southeast Asia. I, I can tell you right now, if I talk to any one of my friends and that's American, ask them do you know who Tony Fernandez is. And well, these what are, makes
2: you think he wants to do a listing in the U.S.?
0: Uh, I think it's publicly stated he wants to do a SPAC listing in the U.S. Really? Yeah. Uh,
2: sorry, sorry, Dave. Why don't you finish what you were saying?
0: No, I was just I was just answering your question. So he's uh, it, so there's multiple headlines. Or multiple um, articles that said specifically he's looking to do a U.S. listing, uh, for the U.S. SPAC listing for the digital ventures businesses. So that's that's where I'm getting that reference point from.
2: Got it. So, so my take on this is, look, at the end of the day, yeah, so I, I feel like as a, as a group, we seem to waver on this quite a fair bit, right? One moment we're, we're interested in these like narrative-driven startups, and then suddenly we become financial experts or looking at it from a numerical perspective. Tony's, Tony's claim to fame is this, right? He was a music guy with no experience running airlines. And he was inspired by Richard Branson, also a music guy who then said, I'm going to run an airline." Um, he bought an airline that was 30 million ringgits in debt for a ringgit. Honestly, it was doomed to fail. If you look at what he inherited with that airline, it was ridiculous. And then he figured out how... So he had a bunch of things working in his favor, right? The, um, you know, he, he did futures contracts on oil, did these ridiculous leasing agreements that, you know, did some really high-risk bets that paid off because travel blew up in Southeast Asia. And if you think about how it grew, right, if you go to any other emerging market, LatAm, the Middle East region, no one's been as, as successful as Tony in building like a low cost budget airline with that many routes and that kind of tight um, economics. And I, I think credit to him, not just like, I don't think it was just luck. Like this guy knows what he's doing, he's able to build that, right? And I think that gives him the confidence to think like, if I've done it once before in a completely unrelated space that I do, knew nothing about, and I made myself a billionaire, Can I do it in other related fields? And and think about what he's done. It's not just like a Malaysian company. It's an Asian company. It's it's a brand that didn't exist 20 years ago. And today it's recognized by a lot of people, not just in Asia, but people who travel into here, right? And 2020 has been brutal to the airline industry and to tourism overall. And Asia has probably gotten harder hit than most other companies here just because you know, they, they have all these long-term commitments that's going to hit their their debt servicing levels and their ability to actually, because um, the way the company is modeled is on all these forward contracts, right? And so what he's doing right now is the same thing he did in the late 90s, which is bet a dollar to build something ridiculous that didn't exist before with this forward-looking site. And he's a visionary who's done it once before. Now, the question is, can he pull together the right team to do this, right? And so this is where I differ a little bit of what you were saying, Alex. Like I know churn's been, been high anecdotally, but to be honest, what's churn at Amazon? 2.3 years, right? What's churn at Alibaba, Tencent, or any of these other fast-code companies? Relatively the same, 18 to 24 months. It, no no one really sticks around for that long in any of these companies, right? Any high-performance company, whether it's the BCG and McKinsey of the world, people don't stick around for that long. You go in, you learn, you get out, you do your own thing, or you join somewhere else, right? But the people that are within his core group have been around for years, right? Irene's been there, what, 15, 20 years from the start. Ben, um, all the other people that are one level below him. Um, and if you look at the way he's he's scaling this up, I think the realization was this. when So... If you think about five years ago, Traveloka also wanted to build this uh, super app idea. But the problem with uh, with these kinds of travel apps moving into super app space is the DAU-MAU for these apps is very low, right? Not a lot of people are using these apps frequently enough for it to be warranted enough for, for this app to become a, like a lifestyle daily usage app, right? And so in that sense, some of the decision-making has been really smart, right? How do I uh, acquire other players to create high enough use cases, whether it's food delivery, whether it's logistics, and build that backend that somehow ties into some of these other businesses and then build a layer of an app on top of that so that you get to scale it up. So, and 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 the pieces are coming into play, right? He's got pay which is like a, a wallet slash credit card, prepaid card, pay. Thing. Then you've got... Asia for travel. Then you've got uh, you know the acquisition of delivery, the acquisition of projects business in Thailand. So I, I think the action is in place right now to sort of do his his uh, second play. I mean, maybe third play. First play was music. Second play was airlines, and the third play is super app. Right. Um, I I think in terms of being able to hire talent, attract the kind right kinds of capital, acquire companies, he knows what he's doing. Um, the question is, will the financials, I mean, it's still a big bet that he's taking, similar to the bet that he took in the 90s. And if tourism kicks off again in the next 18 months and there's more cash in bank, then this guy's going to kill it, right? But if COVID sticks around any further, it's a last ditch effort. I mean, if if I respect and applaud this guy for for doing this, like, you, you know, given how shitty the situation is, he's like, I'm going to bet on something else. And if things get shittier in my original business, I have the second thing to bet and push on.
3: Right, that's
2: my. Uh, well,
1: let me just answer. Let me respond to that one point. I was just, yeah. I was just making a comment alluding to the nature of culture. I mean, your your point still stands. People do come in and out at, at the lower levels. You're right, and you're looking at the core core team for longevity, which matters, right? And at that, that the points to, does he have uh, someone who could execute on the vision? He's definitely much the, the sales guy, the marketing guy, right? The, the, the branding guy, he admits it in all his podcasts that he talks about. Uh, so the question is, you know, for his core team, does he have the Sheryl Sandberg? Does he have the people who execute to make that vision come true? And then also it's very different. You're building a core team on a new separate business segment. And that, that that points to the, the the question of culture. Then, you know, is the culture sticky enough for a different kind of company? For so for the core business, yes, I completely agree. So, uh, um, and I mean, that's why I'll just respond to that one point.
3: Let me add a few points. Um, so first, um, I, I I think the point about churn. So I will never look at it as a as a as a factor to determine whether whether the company is uh, is viable or whether it has good prospects, uh, because churn is what uh, you see from outside, right? I mean, what is causing the churn? Uh, is something interesting because um, uh, because it yep. could be that uh, it could be the culture is bad and people don't stay, et cetera, et cetera. But it, but it could also be, um, you know, um, because the company is super demanding and many people don't fit. And especially in this region, we know that um, uh, experienced talent in tech is scarce, right? I mean, so 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 sometimes you have to bring talent who who might not necessarily make the cut, but uh, but because nobody's experienced, so so you don't really know, and um, yes. and quite often quite often that causes churn. I mean, if you look at Tesla, the churn is probably very high. So 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 whether mm-hmm. whether it matters or not. And second is um, second point I want to make is um is about um, him transitioning from music to um to airline and now airline to super app um i think I, I i think there's a big difference here um so airline is essentially um uh, operating assets i mean you, you have all these assets or do yeah. lose all these assets and you you, tr- you get written out of these assets and he has his marketing experience he has his own branding um uh, but but for airlines it's relatively easy to find people who are experienced to 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 to, to to manage that because because mm. uh, it's, it's, it's a very established True. business and uh, and lots of airlines were inefficient e- because they were they were funded by inefficient capital sometimes state capital so 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 there was no incentive yeah. for them to to survive uh, for, the, for a long time there's no incentive for them to be efficient so uh, so in terms of private airlines there has been a, a, a quite number of examples of people doing pretty well um oh, Although the question, I mean, comes to COVID, right? I mean, because it's a private airline, so they probably do not get the state aid for them to survive compared to other airlines. Um, but uh, but that leads to my third point, which uh, which I, I think he's a he's a survivor, just like Richard Branson. I mean, I look, I looked uh, I look at the uh, yeah. I, I watched the whole live video of uh, Richard Branson going to space. Um, and after that video, I sort of realized uh, why he had to do it uh, so quickly because. And especially after after you have watched um, Bezos, because Bezos technology is far more superior. And but 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 I still look at Branson, he put up this and um and, and and it is inspiring. I think some people would be inspired by that to follow this. Um the last point, which is which is relevant to the first and two points, is is about talent. And as we know that um, that this is building something new, and you don't really have that many people who are. Experience in this area, so, so 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 it's about figuring out. I mean, what is right. I mean, and uh, and he's probably trying different things to see what works out. Um, you you know that uh, for Wei uh when they did. When they sort of decided that uh, the initial group buy was no nono- longer and the group the group model was no nono- longer feasible for the long run. So they internally started about 40 projects and eventually settled on food delivery because it it it, it is what worked out of these 40 attempts. So maybe, maybe there's something uh, going on at the areas as well. They're trying different things to see what works out best for them. And uh, and and last this effort, at least they're still making an effort.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say, you know, there is the I, the reason why there is a bull case and I think it's viable as long as the machine returns back, you know, if the core business can continue to grow, it buys time for them to figure it out. Um, then it's just a matter of all the other fault pieces, you know, can we figure it out then? But, you know, it, 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 like what Dave points out, this is a very precarious time. So it, it does seem very questionable. And one wrong step could mean everything does blow up. Um, and the other thing, last thing I would add is that I, I think what a very interesting piece that I heard from this very esoteric show called the Southeast Asia Travel Show. They talked about the actual regulation piece, and um, there's one case that really puts a big multiple if he maintains his monopoly. Is that if the if the ASEAN Aviation Accord for an open sky policy happens, it means there's free travel, no restrictions in, across countries in Southeast Asia, and with a monopoly, he then could just reap the benefits of no restriction travels, right? So, and all of this is based off the 1944 Chicago Aviation Accords, which talked about the bilateral agreements of how this whole market works globally. Um, So, you know, if, if Asia can get their, their their regulation piece together, you know, I think he's in a very strong position to multiply that, that kind of monopoly even further. Um, Any final comments before we move on to the state of VC? No, I'm good. Okay. So I think for the state of D C D C for me personally, we're gonna talk about what's the current state of VC is in Southeast Asia. Uh that touches a little bit of angel as well, I guess. Uh, there's a macro picture, there's a micro picture. Uh, but you know before we dissect into that, I think Dave had a presentation he wanted to share, so we'll let you take over.
0: Yeah, thanks man. I, I learned how to share my screen in between the two sessions. Yeah. So so here we go. Can you guys can yeah, everyone see my screen? Prepared for us. I have a whole deck. Can everyone see my screen? Yep. Okay, cool. So, I mean, let me just walk through this. Uh, uh, I'll try and be quick as I can, and we can just, of course, uh, interject and have a discussion afterwards. So anyway, um, so State so of VC. So let's start with, I think, sort of like the, the headline numbers is really, you know, I think everyone here talks about um, how the State of VC is booming and there's just a lot more money coming to the market, but I think it was useful for me, at least to quantify um, sort of the, how much money we're actually talking about. So what I have here, is, uh, basically, this is the amount of, uh, capital deployed on a yearly basis in millions of USD. And I apologize. You can't see some of these numbers because of the formatting. Um, you know, basically for the last 10 years, right? So, uh, just to do the quick math to everyone, basically in 2018, 2019, and 2020 uh so we've the the region has deployed around eight uh billion us dollars in capital and you had that is up significantly from sort of like the earlier phase where we're only deploying you know about two to three billion uh, on an annual basis and i think there's no surprise here that a lot of that is going to Singapore and Indonesia actually those two markets represent the lion's share of, of investment right um so that actually maps pretty closely to global venture capital trends. So this is the same graph, except now I've added this yellow mark. So apologize for the audio listeners that can't see this. Um, so this yellow line is the amount of capital deployed in the U.S. Obviously, the scale is different. It's in billions of dollars. But if you look at the trend lines, right, um, mm-hmm. they're roughly, you know, within they're, they're fairly well correlated. And so the question is, um, you know, what what is happening here? Like, why are we seeing this explosion in the last three years? in in venture investment i think there's a lot of things that we can talk about we can talk about sort of just how tech is now no longer a niche product we can talk about quantitative easing but for me it's really about the sources of liquidity Uh, and i have this picture and there's two things i want to talk about here vis-a-vis sources of liquidity so number one is this guy so uh everyone for those who don't know this is obviously uh masayoshi-san so if you look at the quantum of capital invested um in venture capital there's this inflection point in 2017 right where we went from like 3 billion a year to 8 billion a year and i don't think it's any uh uh coincidence that that was also the year the softbank vision fund 1 started to deploy capital right and then the other big like landmark moment or the trend that we're seeing is we're seeing the entrance of crossover funds or what's known as crossover funds into the VC ecosystem. So what crossover funds refer to are typically private equity public market investors that are getting into the VC uh, phase. So typically these guys play in public markets or like late stage, very early pre-IPO, but we are seeing them increasingly go uh, downstream or I, I guess upstream in, in the ecosystem. And so essentially what, what these two these two examples are, are showing is the, the amount of money and the type of capital that's going into the system has fundamentally changed, right? Like six, seven years ago, 10 years ago, people who were investing in VCs were probably corporations, ultra high net worth uh, individuals, family offices. Uh, But, you know, as we've seen with SoftBank and some of these crossover funds, now we're getting a a new class of capital, which is like, you know, pension funds and and sovereign wealth funds. So we're, we're deploying a lot more money than we ever have. And just to give you a bit of an example, right? So this is global VC deals by select investors. So these are all, um, Typically private equity, public market investors. And uh, as you can see, Altimeter is actually in here. So I told you guys I was on top of Grab. So Altimeter, for those who you that remember, is a spac sponsor of Grab. But anyway, what this graph is showing is a lot of these private equity guys are really, really scaling up their venture capital participation and their activity in the market. Uh, and I think the one to really, really talk about or focus on a little bit is Tiger Global. So Tiger Global is this black line here, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So these... Line. So these guys are incredibly interesting. So, so you know, for as much as like VC invests in innovative companies, the actual VC space in and of itself has actually been pretty stagnant for the last 20, 25 years. And, and Tiger Global is is creating like a whole new approach. To, to venture capital. Essentially what they're saying is they're, so P- Tiger Global, for those who don't know, were typically, they were a um, private equity. They had managed, they were managing about 70 billion US dollars
1: um, funny, yeah.
0: in in in, in uh, public market equities. And then they started really ramping up their VC activity. Uh, most of it was in India for a while, but the, as you can see, this is sort of like the number of deals you've participated in. So starting in around 2018, they really start ramping up The amount of deals that they're doing. So they did 52 deals in 2018, 82 deals in 2019, 79 deals in 2020, and like year to date, 2021, they've done 176 BC deals. So that's essentially a deal a day. And they're also um, raising huge funds. So they've raised in the last, you know, 10 years, 23.6 billion. USD inventory capital for just one fund, and to give you some context, you know, in, in 2018 or 2017, in the US, the, all the VCs combined raised 23 billion US dollars. So this, these one uh, asset managers are raising at a and employing at an incredible velocity, and it's incredibly interesting what they're doing. So essentially, what they're saying is, on the on the uh, entrepreneur side, they're giving uh, super fast close; they can close within a week they're giving incredibly favorable rates they don't take board seats they don't take control they let the entrepreneurs do their thing and they're giving you above market valuations so as a as an operator why wouldn't you take that right and then on the flip side as a product for LPs what they're essentially doing is they're creating an index fund of late stage tech right so if you want exposure to tech companies that have yet to go to market go invest in Tiger Global fund and you get access to alpha and that's an incredibly compelling product so i think they're they're what they're doing is incredibly innovative on both sides of the equation so essentially what that's doing is it's really in, and we're seeing this in southeast asia right is it's inflating deal sizes at all stages right so 2016 numbers are uh, in blue and the 2019 numbers are in green so as you can see uh between c series a and series b we're seeing deal sizes double be uh, basically in the in the interim um, and so these these are these are the the global uh, so that so Tiger Global is of course a global operator right and i think it's interesting where even though we're seeing these trends on the global level and we've seen some knock-on effects in terms of the deal sizes southeast asia is still in this strange spot where basically if you look at the types of investors and where they operate we have a lot of seed funds there's a lot of seed players right uh, and for late stage, so I say late stage, I mean like D, C, D plus, you know, there's a plethora of options. You know, you can IPO, you can do a SPAC, you can do an m but there's actually a huge um, space that's left out in sort of the growth stage, like the B, C stage of funds. You can see that here, right? So this graph is showing you number of funds uh, at each stage. And you can see that uh, also reflected in startup survival rates by stage right? So what I've compiled here, adjust this a bit, is basically uh, you have two sets of data. One is startup deals uh, in Southeast Asia between 2011 and 2021. Uh, So this is the uh, blue line here. And then the other one is uh, a cohort of tech deals that were done in 2011 and 2014, which is this orange line here, right? So as you can see here, the number of deals uh, at each stage. And then the percent previous is the percent of startups that were able to successfully raise a a subsequent round of funding, both from the immediate previous phase and from the total. So how to read this essentially is uh, what what you're seeing is if you're a Series A company, the chances of you raising capital and being successful uh, between the US and Southeast Asia is they're they're pretty comparable. So basically 47.6% of all uh, startups that raised a seed round went on to raise an A round Mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia. Right, and in the u s that number is fifty five point nine percent so really so when you say successful,
3: 90%. it means converting to the next stage, right
0: Yes, I mean, so to be clear, to be clear, there are some of course, there's some companies that um, either don't never have to raise again because they found a sustainable business model or i mean there there's some other you know exit uh mm-hmm. trajectories that are built in here that we're not talking about, right? So this is an approximation, I understand that, but I think it's a useful metrics to look at, right. Um but however once we start getting to the B and C stage we see a pretty significant gap in the survival rates right so in southeast asia only 18% of people that raise an A uh or only sorry only 18% of people that raise a seed manage to raise a B right whereas in US 33% of people that raise a seed manage to raise a B and as you go further down in the stages those numbers that that gap starts to widen it does however uh, reconcile a little bit towards a very, very late stage, right? Where, as you can see here, once you get like the GHI rounds, right, basically, uh, in certain cases, like 100% of startups are raised um, in E round, in Southeast Asia, managed to raise an F round. But I think this is a function of just like, that's they're being. Yeah, that's like the grab. And and there's so few deals here. So, you know, there's a joke here about McKinsey consultants and data points and not having enough data points. <laughs> I think,
1: uh, you know? um, but anyway, I think what, what I what I'm saying. You, uh, oh go ahead. How do you adjust for the definition of size of rounds from region to region? Cuz a seed in Asia for a long time, it's not going to be the same as a seed in America. You just you, or you just
0: you just compensate for the sequence. So the first round is C, the second round is A, uh B, oh, okay. C, B. Just by sequence. so just by sequencing doesn't matter. Yeah, cuz there's a bunch of like different yeah. names like this super okay. series A, super seed, blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. For just it's just just keep it simple, okay. right? Sequentially. All right. That's yeah. Fine um and so so that's that's for me that's interesting right so basically what it's saying to me is is if you wanted to play in the space in southeast asia actually uh being in the growth phase i think there's some interesting um potential opportunities that are there and then so the last part of this is what are these people actually funding right so this is essentially uh, capital invested by sector in USD, broken out by year across all the different verticals, uh, sorted in descending order. So I think it's no surprise um, that the two largest beneficiaries of capital over the last, you know, seven, eight years have been the consumer internet. So that's the Grab, Super Apps, uh, and the retail. So so these two... E-commerce. Yeah, e-commerce, right? So these these guys have raised essentially over between 2013 2020, about 20 billion US dollars in capital, which just counts for... Uh, the vast majority of the capital that's being, um, you know, uh, deployed in the system. However, you know, as the ecosystem matures, we are seeing some changes here. So, you know, as you can see, uh, you see like upticks in payment. We're seeing uptick in fintech, financial services. We're seeing uptick in, in this, uh, logistics. So, these are what I would consider sort like the digital infrastructure plays that uh, are to be had in the region. And we're also seeing some nice uptick. In healthcare and education, uh, so I, I think that's pretty self self explanatory. Obviously, I, healthcare with the whole COVID
3: situation. Just a uh, just one point. Uh, I think the charts yeah. that that you're doing here, um, so so you're showing here, uh, came from the, the the central Ventures report, and uh, and we're we're actually sort of. Um, uh, so co-branding this report for the Chinese audience uh, and, and tailored a ah, copy okay. for for China. So 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 actually went very deep into this report, and uh, I mean, this guys, yeah. uh, Centralovich, Dimitri, Sun and the team, they have been tracking these numbers for about six seven years. Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. Um, so so the retail you refer to is essentially e-commerce and uh, anything that that that, that, that yeah. has to do with the people yeah. sending to, to 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 consumers. But but what do you see? Uh, healthcare and education. Uh, last year there was actually a drop if, if yeah. you pay attention so so in 2019 everybody got so excited and there's so many so many different um uh startups in healthcare and edu- education which got funded and uh in 2020 i mean which was supposed to be a year where where these things just explode but um, but from a funding point of view that doesn't represent uh so so, so that's something we find Fairly interesting, and I think something to do with the, the structure of the healthcare and uh, education system in each country's. um I mean, yeah. you, you've seen a crackdown in China about education, and uh, and, uh, and 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 of, of course, I mean, the sector bloomed partially because the pressure that the uh, that, that that the kids are facing, the parents are facing, in order to excel and. Um, and of course, people are saying that okay, in Southeast Asia, I mean, the population is big, so it should be competitive. Um, but the reality is that we don't see things as being so competitive. And many of the companies which are in education uh, um, got lots of funding because uh, because they were they were riding on government subsidies, educational programs, so essentially became distribution channel mm. for government subsidy. Interesting. Mm. That's uh, anyway. interesting. Okay, yeah. I did not know that.
0: Yeah. No, no, that's, that's that's an excellent point. Thank you um, for bringing that up. Um, yeah, let me let me just wrap this up real quick. Sure. I, I'm almost done. So here, here sort of here sort of my takeaways, uh, having gone through these. So there's a couple things, right? So what what we're seeing essentially is there's a plethora of these early stage funds. I think if you're an early stage entrepreneur, like trying to rate a seed round or a Series A round, there's you have a lot of options, right? So essentially, what that means is that most early stage capital is probably going to be undifferentiated unless you have some really strong brand name uh, or you're incredibly strategic or you're some sort of, sort of domain expert right uh other than that it's it's capital is just going to be capital on the early stage uh, as we go a little bit further down, down the stack or downstream you know like i said i think the fact that there's like still a fairly substantial lack of growth stage funds i think means that a lot of these undifferentiated players uh, uh can actually have a window of opportunity to to deploy interesting strategies mm-hmm. In the region, because then again, by the time we get into late stage, uh, late stage startups, I mean there's so few of them, and people are so bullish on the region that they essentially have a plethora of options to in terms of exits and, and liquidity so you're not going to be able to play at this stage unless you have access to uh like i said like sovereign wealth money essentially institutional right money. institutional yeah i mean the biggest asset allocators in the world that's that's the level you yeah. need to be at to play that game uh and then and finally uh like i said there is a shift in investment focus i think of course consumer internet will still remain a strong concentration because that uh competition that game isn't played out yet we don't have a clear winner and i think there's still be substantial amounts of capital being deployed into that space but i do see uh uh, we're seeing additional uh, emphasis on at least the digital infrastructure side of things and early numbers indicate fintech and edtech but as jenggan has pointed out correctly that 2020 did see drop off uh relative to 2019 so uh i guess my point is if you're trying to be in in early stage angel investor you should probably really know your your shit have a really good brand or have some really great value add. Otherwise I think it'd be quite difficult for you to get in on some of these deals. So yeah, that's, uh, that's basically it. I'll stop this.
1: Um, I'll, I'll just jump in. Cause I think Dave looked at the trees. Uh, and I, before we dive into the leaves and the smaller details, which we'll pick apart, uh, I just, we, I don't, for my part, I don't think we need to talk about too much, but what I, the way I looked at it was looking at the forest, and uh, I think a lot of what we're seeing and why we're seeing this huge surge in capital in the region was because it's tied back to the 2008 financial crisis of how QE played out and the tone that set psychologically policy-wise that followed, to which led to a huge rise in the massively inflated financial system, right? And this kind of directly flowed with the expectations of low interest rates, all the money flowing to the market to the largest institutional investors. And I I haven't done the exact math of how each step worked out, but I do think ultimately from the 2008, the low interest rate uh, environment from 2008 to 2016, right? Everyone was taking advantage of this bull market run all these institutional investors made so much money and they were looking for more risk capital and all this kind of risk capital, not all of it, like actually it's a tiny percentage made it into the VC space. So if you really, what's really interesting, if you look at a percentage of VC out of the total financial market, it's tiny, which is why it just leads to the rise of glo- you know, tiger global and all these kind of players who can now innovate because you have much more capital to play with. And that kind of leads to the environment we're seeing of why we have companies raising billions of dollars to buy market share more financial engineering, people trying to fight for the same user base and you don't need to kind of innovate on the product as much where you have so much capital just to build it and figure it out later, which kind of leads to companies we're talking about later, like or all these kind of grabs and Asia is like, does all this make sense, you know, because there's so much money flowing to the system and as a percentage, it's still small. So like, it's very possible if this bull market run keeps going, like this metaphor just extends even further and gets bigger and this and that ultimately does squeeze down like Dave points out, you know, further down down to the early stage, like, why do you matter if there's so much money in the market? Uh, all the big guys are going are to have information funds where like, you know, uh, right now it's like maybe 10 to 50K checks is going to be the same thing as doing 100K checks in the future because it's so small relative to the size, right? So um, I think the psychological effects, the, you know, the, the how these LPs and institutional investors are feeling affects downstream of what we see in VC, those trends that Dave's talking about. Um, but then maybe you guys want to pick apart, like, I don't know, do you, are, do you guys kind of, Agree with what Dave is saying.
2: All right, sure. Fine. First of all, Dave, uh, thanks a bunch, man. That was an incredible pre- uh, presentation. I'm not sure how our podcast listeners are going to get that, but I hope that uh, people tune on to YouTube and see that because that was pretty cool. Um, eh, so a couple of things. Number one is I think in general there's like this look, – look, with investing, what you want to do is be able to own – 15, 20% of the winning companies, right? If you can yeah. predict Apple up front, the whole, the whole I, I mean I, I can't remember which VCs it was, but like you know, Excel, for example, sold their uh, I like Apple shares in the early 90s because they had a commitment to the LPs, right? If they had held on to their shares for another 30 years, you know, it'll probably be the size of some of the funds that they're raising right now. A so a few times. Yeah, correct. So so at the end of the day. Um, ideally, what you want to do is to be able to hold like a stake in the companies that have been battle tested and you know they're going to win. Right. So this Tiger strategy is incredible. Ultimately, you know, Tiger is one of the Tiger Cubs. Uh, you know, after Julian Robertson wrapped up his business, all the people that were running uh, his different investment funds ended up doing their own things. And one of those is Tiger Global Management. And at some point, um, the team running it figured out, hey, actually, uh, there is, uh, you know, make complete sense to pivot towards, just doing VC. I mean, I still think they do traditional PE as well, but, but basically they started to bet on late stage, you know, series N deals. Right. And what they're doing is, is a strategy of like, how do you predict and, and aim and own reasonable stakes in the companies that are going to blow up? Because it's, you know, you've almost de-risked by coming in at that late stage, right? And at that point, the kind of valuation you're doing, the kind of work and analysis you're doing to figure out whether it's the right deal is closer to to, to traditional PE, looking at traction, looking at consumers, looking at how that business is growing. Um, So I think that's the first piece. So it's like, it seems obvious that PE is moving into VC and that VCs are going to this size, right? But then to to just add a little bit there, um, I mean everything that we're seeing right now is relatively recent, right? Anderson Horowitz's first fund was 2009. That's 12 years ago. And, you know, that was like 12 years from software is eating the world and this whole thesis that tech is going to take over. And now they're running what, 16 to 20 billion AUM. Um, the iPhone was launched in 2007, not that long ago. And, and now we're seeing, you know, the beginnings of of where things are going. Um, then you had Masa Sun with a hundred billion dollar vision fund. And, You know, people were like, "Does that even make sense? What are you doing with all of this stuff?" And turns out, Specs ended up playing the role that Vision Fund did as well. Like the total, like the total value of Specs last year was somewhere close to 100 billion, which is what they were planning to do with Vision Fund too. Uh, And then you add fractionalized ownership, uh, secondary trading sites like Republic and Equity Zen that have risen in the last few years. Like, there's just a lot more entry into trying to invest in tech, right? And so I think that's going to be natural, and you're just going to see more and more of these balloons. What's curious for me, though, Dave, I don't know what the, the sources of the data is, but I'd love to know what the MOIC or the returns are on some of these funds. Because on average, I don't know how many people are actually beating the market and what the, what the real alpha is, right? I know some of these funds are doing like, you know, 20 plus percent IRR, but is that really better than a traditional, you know, uh, you know any sort of other index fund? Um, because there are specialized funds like uh, I was looking at the LADAM space thanks to Jangan's rabbit holes that he keeps introducing to me. <laughs> and there are funds doing you know 40, 60 percent IRR there. So I do think that you know it depends on on your specific place. Some funds are doing better than others. It'll be kind of interesting to know why they're doing that. That's that's probably like one piece to to dig deeper. Um the second thing is this dearth of growth stage companies, right? Uh, growth stage VC. Um, that's been the thesis of a couple of entrants in SEA. So if you guys remember Nick Nash, the the president of, of C, um, who left in what, 2018, I think. And he started Asia, Asia Growth Partners, which is basically like a VC fund looking at this space. That was his thesis. And now there's a whole bunch of them that have launched in there, right? Um, I'm very curious to understand why there is that gap. Because I think my, my logic is like, below growth, it's all about, like, is the team good? Is the traction making sense? Does that market exist, right? Above growth, it's traditional PE funds. Y- you know, your two-by-two your two chart just now, Dave, of, like, PE moving into VC. That's traditionally the VC players who are playing these big tickets are PEs who became VCs or VCs who think a lot like PEs, like A16Z, right? Mm-hmm. But what's happening is, like, that there's, the, there's that middle stage where, like, I think it's a lot deeper than this, right? So if I, if I take a stab at this, here's what it is. If you're a large fund, then your LPs are going to be pensions, endowment funds that have very strict capital requirements. They're going to need you to look at specific companies, have very strong data controls, have very strong capital requirements, right? If you're a seed stage VC, you can't raise from these pension funds because you're literally shooting darts in the dark, right? So in that sense, you're going to high net worth investors, family offices. Uh, people have exited their startups before. So your LPs are a fundamentally different bunch. I think growth capital is tricky because the guys who are writing 50 the, the LPs who are writing $50 million checks, you know, may be reluctant to give it to a growth capital guy. So I think I think fundraising is tricky at growth capital. I don't I don't know enough about this space, but that's one hypothesis. Um the second hypothesis, I just think, like, analysis is super risky. So it's easy to say, like, I mean, when I look at the chart, I'm like, holy shit, let's just raise the fund and, and, like, invest in the 20 or 30 million stage. But I actually think it, there may be, like, some serious structural reasons for why they don't exist. Also, I just realized that my video screen is frozen. I don't, is it <laughs> frozen for all you uh,
3: You're frozen, but your audio is clear, so... You, yeah. you are pretty cool uh, being still and still talking, so very nice.
1: Uh, just really quickly, I mean, there, there is a comparable, like there's a comparable to Silicon Valley where the reason why Tiger Global exists was part of the big picture that I was talking about, but it's because of all the the growth funds in Silicon Valley were kind of getting lazy. Uh, I I heard this from a few other podcasts of people talking about this. um, And that from, from like everyone funding series B, it was just easy. Like once you cleared market on A, they would just wait and just throw all money in there. So Tiger Global was just like, well, we don't need to do all the due diligence anymore. We're just going to just do it really quicker and faster. We have more money because that's what moves the, you know, the, it actually makes a difference on the AUM, right? You need to deploy a lot more capital for that to make sense. Um, and, and there's there's also the argument going on now that you don't even need growth, growth stage. There's so many more ways to finance your company if you want to get more liquidity. You just need to, you know, go C to Series A, but then you can skip it and just go via SPAC. Right, so there, there's that argument going on that maybe you're, it's innovating to the point where you don't need it, uh, uh, and then the other the other argument was answering you know that Tiger global is disrupting series that growth area in the middle, right? And for Southeast Asia, I'm not too sure what that means. Maybe Jack can give better insights.
3: Yeah, um, I should I, I wanted to comment on this uh, part about the Series C Series uh, D gap. Um, so, so in China, in the in the venture circle, there's this uh, this uh, this saying called silence, which means you die at Series C um and, and <laughs> i have not seen any data supporting that but this is something that, that many people talk about um and the rationale is that uh, i mean when i mean if, if you think about different series of funding right see this is essential to get ideas started i mean get a product and start to get some 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 so, so, some customers and a series a is supposed to be found a product marketing feed uh, product market feed and um, and it can grow it can scale and series b you, you continue that scale and um and, and the thing is, I mean, I look at many of the companies in Southeast Asia, um, some of them, I mean, I, many of them, uh, Series A, not a problem, because they, they find a way to to grow the numbers. At Series B, they can still grow the numbers. At Series C, uh, that wild growth sort of hit, um, hit a wall, saying that I, I can't grow as fast uh, as before. Um, just think about all this... Um, all these companies in Indonesia uh, doing FMCG, whether it's distribution or retail, that has been selling cigarettes. Right? I mean, at, at, at some point, in time you realize that okay, you don't control anything, and it's still the upstream guys. Um, and and unless you are willing to to invest in like trucks, warehouses, and to become a, a proper trader, otherwise, uh, otherwise, I mean, people see that you you your model can't grow anymore. So, so, so I do think that in Southeast Asia, I mean, at least you can see a few companies which. Um, which grow until a certain stage. I mean, after Series B, they are still growing, but uh, but when Series C investors come in, they said, "Um, oh, okay, uh, with this money, I'm going to, with this check. I'm going to write to you. What else can you do?" And uh, and typically, I, I think with s- many companies, this is where um, they struggle to, to 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 find a model which which deviates from not deviates, but which extension to whatever that gave them the the, the initial impetus for growth. Um, uh, I mean, if you look at companies like um, Zlingo, I mean, I'm, I'm sure initially the, the numbers looked impressive. If you look at some of the companies which just raised Series B, I'm sure the numbers look impressive. But are they able to sustain that growth to Series C and above? So, that, that's a big question mark. And and in terms of, I mean, I, I know Nick Nash has made argument that, okay, there's a the shortage of Series C to Series D, so that's why he was raising uh, this capital, which which, which which I think having someone based in this region to understand this region, to invest in this stage, it makes sense. But but this is also an area which is highly competitive, right? I mean, I, I know lots of people coming from outside this region, sending a guy to be based in Singapore, yeah. looking for deals between 30 to 80 million, 30 to 100 million, 50 to 100 million. So 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 this is an area where people pretty much move globally. So, so I wouldn't think that lack of indigenous funds sure. would uh, would make much difference I mean if you, you have companies which are, which are still growing at that stage and uh, and they're raising capital I'm sure that um, especially now Southeast Asia is in a map of global investors so I'm, I'm sure that they, they can raise money from somebody from Korea somebody from Japan somebody from the US or even you know, somebody from from Hong Kong so so I don't see that as a problem um, I, I think Andrew mentioned a point about um, about um, the, the percentage of VC being very small out of total investment in this region. I remember I was talking to a state-owned company in Indonesia, which does lots of investment. Uh, that, that's about two years ago. And, and, and the term he used, I mean, part of what his allocation is, is VC. And he said, I mean, the VC looks very impressive. Everyone talks about that. And the amount we actually put into VC versus we put into other stuff. And he used the word cute. The amount we put to use is very mm-hmm. cute compared to everything else. is tiny, and maybe it will become big. But, uh, but, but, but I think the question for everyone is that um, would that be? I mean, and all these conglomerates and stuff which have money. I mean, would they be be able to 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 make this decision to bet big before everyone else does? I mean, why would they be the first mm-hmm. to, to 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 take the risk and can not they just ride the wave that everybody else is doing? Um. The point about um, performance numbers, IRR, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I've seen the DPI um, distribution to paid in capital over few VCs. Actually, very few VCs in this region have DPI. I mean, have basically paid money back to investors. I think there are yeah. there are two or three yeah. which are impressive, but but the rest is like 0.7, 0.8. and uh, and 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 I, and I remember there was one of them which was p- pitching to an LP. I was actually in that meeting. He said, "Look, look, our DPI is one." And the guy said, "Oh, I invested in the same. <laughs> <laughs> I invested in a fund in Beijing, and it has been two years. And the DPI has already won, and it still has five years, and it still has yeah. um, buy downs in its portfolio, which has not it has not exited. So, um, I mean, where do I put on my money? Um, so, so, so I, thought, I think lots of the people who put money initially without these things, some of them are opportunistic, but some of them are just putting some money to to test the market and." Um, mm. And only when the market yeah. truly sort of matures mm. with lots of opportunities, they are willing to put in big money. Which which I think with some companies exiting with multiple IPOs going on, uh, potentially over the next two to three quarters, and some big money is going to come in. Um, two two more points, sorry, uh, very quickly. So okay. I, I, actually, I actually like the way that the, the guys who have been, I mean, the crossover funds, right? People who have been, I mean, not only PE, but people who have been working on secondary markets going to VC. And, uh, and I've been talking to lots of these guys over the past uh, eight months since the beginning of the year because I'm stuck, they're stuck. So um, so so what I find interesting is that, I mean, lots of the things that VC and especially PE guys argue over over and again about due diligence, about this, about that, for them, it's like, oh, not an issue. I mean, a small issue. I've seen that with so many companies. Um, so, 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 so the way they allocate capital, the way they evaluate companies... Um, uh, it's different, so I, I have a feeling that many of the VCs looking at, or, or even or, or PEs looking at, some of the issues that that, that are not issues for the, for the guys who are so used to secondary markets. Uh, the last thing is about due diligence. I mean, how much due diligence do you really need to do? And if if due diligence gives you some red flags, what do you do? Right? I mean, do you sort of just yeah just just ignore it, or do you actually make a fuss out of it? and and I do have a feeling that whoever who has signed a term sheet would have natural impetus to push through this deal so 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 I mean if I've already made effort and uh, to negotiate with this company, give a term sheet, I think this company w- what, so, so yeah, what do you mean so so unless 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 there's something drastic drastic uh, coming out of due diligence, otherwise i mean um the incentive is to to push through the deal unless there's like really really a big body give them more the money.
1: So we have stupid under the carpet. Give them more money. Which honestly, which is I think what we've been
3: seeing on all these big fund fundraisers we've been witnessing happening, right? Yeah, because because I mean, it, it can show um, some warning signs, but which warning signs should you take serious? Which warning signs should you not? And do you leave that entirely to risk, and uh, or, or, or or do you make make, make a sort of subjective uh, assessment? So 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 that's a thing which. Yeah. Um, which I think people need to think about, uh, which strategy they want they want to take, how, how, how they're going to approach this. Well, I, I mean, I think there's, okay, yeah, that's, I mean, there's a couple of, there's a lot of points that were brought
0: up and I'll, I'll try and go through them a lot. I, I think, you know, Andrew uh, and Jung on everyone's point about like, what are the actual IRRs on some of these funds? I mean, I'll be honest as a, a you know, I'm pretty sure someone's done the math on this already, but basically I think, you know, if you were an angel investor, Right, you would probably be better off financially if you just bought an index of publicly traded tech stocks and held onto those for ten years, as opposed to actually doing to be an angel investor. Right, I I think like right now, invalidating
2: my life, David. You're invalidating my life. (laughs) I've been
0: validating my own life, so you know we're both in the same boat. It's I'm not picky on you, but it's but let me let's be honest, right? Like I mean, I think uh, I'm talking about angel now specifically, early stage, early stage in general. I think you should only do it uh, if you, uh, there's got to be some really strict criteria. Like one, if you really, really understand the space that they're trying to play in, uh, or 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 two, and probably more. It's like you just want to do it just to to sort of give back to to the ecosystem. Because I mean, looking at the asset class in general, uh, it, the the returns on angel, I think is like, I think to the industry average is like twenty percent. Um, but given like how illiquid that asset class is and how long you have to hold it, uh, just, just buy a basket of, of, you know, Google, Apple, Fang, you know, whatever. And you'll probably make about as much money. Right. And you also have the upside of being able to cash out if you need the money to go buy a boat <laughs> or something. Right. Um, and I, but so, so that's, that's early stage yeah. on the, on the late stage, you know, I think, I think that's where I like, tiger is also interesting because these guys, um, as people have pointed out, they don't necessarily have uh, a fiduciary responsibility to disperse um, their gains, so they can actually hold on to uh, the companies after they become public uh, and write out any potential upside um, that's there. And I, and I think the other the and so then the question is like, okay, what about the people in the middle? And I think this is this is this is the tricky part, right? So I've been in LP meetings where um, you know VC in some ways is sort of like the cushiest of all jobs where you raise, cause you, you raise. So the hardest part about VC is raising your first fund, your first fund. We're getting can someone, if you're a new entrant into the market and you've never managed one before getting your first anchor, And getting the first people to invest in you is always going to be the hardest. Because then what happens after that is you deploy on a seven-year time frame. And usually what happens is, you know, uh, around year three, year four, you start, you know, doing talks for fun too. Uh, But the problem there is usually you're you're raising based off paper gains. And as we all know, in a frothy bull market, paper gains, it's really easy to show high RR on paper gains because, you know, you, you can pick and choose. So that's, it's just the incentives in general, I think are, are kind of perverse um, in that sense. So, and I, that's sort of getting to Jungan's point about like people not having a lot of transparency in the region about what their actual, like, you know, ratios are in terms of that. Um, In terms of sort of like the red flags, question right i think those tie together because yeah you know if the vc's incentive is to deploy capital as much as they can and then to raise based off paper gains and yes i I get your point about um you know looking the other way i guess my question to you jungan is like i think that question differs a lot based off what stage you're at and what kind of red flags i'm not sure i agree that having a term sheet in and of itself is sort of like a, a strong of motivator just to push through a deal just because i have a term sheet i mean i've been in meetings i you know i've raised before as well personally like i've had plenty of term sheets that have fallen through after the term sheet's been signed and, you know, something comes up in due diligence. And uh, I like to think that I'm a pretty honest person and I'm not like, you know, <laughs> doing something egregiously wrong. <laughs> so but, so I I, I'm no, not, I don't think uh, I agree with you on that point.
3: That's, but, but my question to you is that, I mean, when something comes up, um, is the same person who signed the term sheet who turned on a deal or is somebody else within the the fund? I mean, maybe a different partner, maybe the, the investment committee my point is not not about fun per se my point is about the, the individual who gave the term sheet would have a natural inclination uh to push the deal through not necessarily
1: the, uh, okay. the, the fun okay. as okay. well. Okay. Yeah. that's true that's true
3: fair enough that,
0: okay that i agree with yes in in that case yes the person that is the 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 point person on your deal generally speaking i agree has incentives to push the deal through i, I agree with you there
1: Okay. Well, to me, the more interesting question, like now, now, given what we've talked about and I really like this because it helps formalize what I've been feeling. Right. And this is more of a personal question than to you guys. Would you prefer to be a builder in this market or would you prefer to be an investor in this market? I think it's what we talked about.
0: I think that that question is really specific in terms of what your background is. Right. Like if you're a part of like this universe, uh, and it's a very small universe of successful entrepreneurs in the region. You should definitely be a builder because you get your, yeah. y- you, you get the best terms, right? Like if you're the guy, okay, let's say, if, okay, hypothetically, let's say if Anthony Tan once like quit grab tomorrow and he went out to build another yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever, you, a lot. <laughs> you know, you would get the, you would just get the creme de la creme of everything and you could just take your pick of the litter and you would get the best deals ever. Um, right. Um, I, but I do think, um, you know, if you're just like a normal person that maybe has had some middling success uh, or, you know, is a fresh, you know, I think the other side of this market is there's still a lot of um, information asymmetry between the investor and the entrepreneur. And I do think there are some um. Uh. What, you know, I uh, my my choice is I would not be an investor, but that's that's just me. Yeah.
1: Well, you feel that you have a, an advantage because you are you've been a deep deep operator in the region and you know a lot of the players in the network, so you have some kind of advantage, I guess. That
0: that's true. Do. Yeah, you have a roadmap. I think yeah. you you have a roadmap, right. and I think there is more professionalization, there's more uh, transparency into the industry. Uh, that's certainly over you the know, last like 7-8 seven, seven, years, and it's improving, right? but at the end of the day, it's still I think a very nascent. Uh, market. I, right? I
1: agree. Yeah, It's because it's, it's about like, they're still lacking infrastructure. Like if you look at like actual term sheets going wrong, compared to other more mature markets, you know, there, there's still a gap like safe is still a relatively new, Instrument, Yes, you see more nowadays, but like before that, it's like, you know, it's, it's like a lot of investors don't even know what it is or don't even want to engage in it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, mentality, you know, it, what, what is the investor mentality is, you know, founder friendly versus, you know, just, I'm going to just not help you when it, when it comes to push to shove and not, not support the founder. Right. And, uh, I think it's, there's still a lot to be developed on the on the micro picture there um and you know same thing points to lawyers every lawyer i meet i try to get them to convince them to be like a, a general <laughs> counsel for startups but you know it's hard to convince them they're stuck in their lanes. <laughs>
3: so,
1: i don't know and, and drew has, has any of this data changed your mindset you still want to be a builder you want to invest more
2: <laughs> so so i mean i'm greedy i want to have it all right um, and, and to be honest, like if you, if you look at the Anthony Tan's of the world, I'm pretty sure he's angel investing on his Sunday evenings and he's getting like an amazing deal flow because he's Anthony Tan, Right. So theoretically, if you do build something at that scale, you will also be an angel investor and you'll have access to incredible deals. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe like take a, so I'm going to put it this way, right? For me, investment is something you've got to do every day. It's, it's like going to the gym right? Every person needs to be an investor because if your money's not working for you, then you're working for money. And it doesn't matter where you're investing. Are you investing in public markets, private markets, crypto, yeah. whatever, find your thing and, and learn how to make money work for you, right? Um, for me, I like Angel because it's fun. Uh, there's all this yeah. information that I've access to in my brain, in my network, and, and I can use that to do interesting things, right? And Number two is I feel like I'm generally helping these companies. Like I feel I have something to contribute beyond just capital. And so in that mm. sense, like Angel super fun. Um, yeah. And number three, which I have not realized yet, because if you have, in many ways, right, seed investing is a ticket. You're paying for a ticket, knowing well that you'll burn it. But there's a chance that, that that ticket could buy you the next unicorn. And if you have the ability to add an additional... Um, Uh, to enter in additional rounds, right? I mean, nowadays it's not common to get pro rata rights anymore, but if you have good relationships with that founder, you can either get a syndicate together, do an SPV, or just put your own money in if you have that much to get into subsequent rounds. And and going back to what I said earlier, the goal is to have significant as much percentage as possible of the largest companies in the world, right? If today you could invest in the apple of... Twenty years from now, right? And you know the founder close enough that you can keep staying at a two percent or three percent ownership of that company. That's incredible, right? Um, yeah. And so, in that sense, I think I think like you know, you everyone's got to be an investor, whether you do it on the side or whether you do it on the full time. It's it's something that you got to do. Um, mm. Now, on on the kinds of of funds, though, I, I think this is where it gets really interesting, right? So, two things here. Number one is. Um, there's there's so many ways to skin this cat, right? Like, like like you've got the traditional way of looking at VC. You go out, you raise funds from a bunch of LPs, you run this VC, and then the world's evolved. Now you have syndicates, you have friends that do it together over a weekend, you have single GP funds. Uh, I I had calls from, from investors in the in the valley going, like, you've just exited a company in, in, in Southeast Asia. Well, you know, how about do you have a fund? Can we co invest with you? How does it work? And and that's very interesting. Yeah. Like people are actually looking out for single GP funds because there's been huge success in the US with people who exited their companies and then invested in fields they're very close to, right? Um, you know, if you're the if you're the co founder of of Kareem in the Middle East, you have access to networks that no one else has. This isn't the Silicon Valley where everyone has somewhat similar access to everything and there's a lot going on. In these regions outside of developed markets, the, like you, you can be a power broker and a communicator, right? And that goes hand in hand. This is in the public markets. You can have information that no one else has, and so in that sense, like I think, investing um, outside of public markets, you have an informational advantage, right? Um, now, how you monetize this, whether you monetize it, your your choose of your choice of vehicle. That's ultimately dependent on to you. You could also have all this information and then make terrible bets because you're just not very good at making bets. Entirely possible as well, right? Uh, I hope that's not my case, and I'm going to learn that. But the, the issue with investing is, like you mentioned, <laughs> you you know you find out that data way way too late, right? Um, and last bit for me is this, right? Uh, correlated with what I just said, because you find out that information very late, um, and also if you think about it, right, the sharp ratio for for like any sort of tech investing, sharp ratio meaning the the your return per unit of risk, right? So your, your your returns per unit of volatility, it's ridiculous for all these alternative asset classes, whether it's angel investing, crypto, whatever, right? At the end of the day, um, if your my theory is this, right? If if you if you have hundred million dollars, you know, under your name, right? You're going to put a bulk of that assets in something that's either your own business. Or if you're not running your own business, you're going to put that in something that secures that money over the long run, decent returns at a relatively acceptable rate of volatility. You're not going to be throwing it and gambling and doing ridiculous bets. You'll take a small portion of that and you'll treat it like chump change and invest, right? Angel investing is like that. It's more like, it's a bit like taking punts and taking bets, right? So if you're a bit of a gambler who likes to do a little poker and you've got friends that you like playing along with it, it's a bit like that, right? But if you are a relatively, um, you know, well-to-do LP who has funds that you're managing with some level of sanity, or if you're managing that for some, like if you're a pension fund, there's no way you're giving that money to people who are making puns. No way, right? You have a responsibility to ensure people have their pensions at the end of the day, right? A uh, fiduciary duty or, or whatever it's called. And so, at the end of the day, I think like there's a room for all these these vehicles, but I guess more curiously, and I feel like I'm meandering, but I'm just going to wrap it up here. I'm very curious whether the world is going to open up and allow people to invest in more stages, right? Because right now, there's this whole universe of private equity capital that is untapped for by most retail investors. Even if you're somewhat accredited, it's just hard to get into the Series N of SpaceX, right? But I think I think there's an opportunity here to to have... Retail investors start to access things like what Tiger is accessing right now, right? And I think actually that revolution is happening. Like if you look at the 1800s, before, I think it was the Missouri company that introduced like corporation stocks and everyone was like, this doesn't make sense. Why would you let 2000 people own a company, right? And today that is the predominant way of how companies are run. I hope that what's going to happen with this whole liberalization is that that stage of corporatization and fractalized ownership goes lower and lower and lower so that more people get to access these things and that generates like a, a flywheel of capital right um but i guess that's just my you know very like uh waha
3: rose-tinted thinking do you want to do a syndicate because i look at the syndicates now they're pretty boring it's like a bunch of people each one putting like 10k 20k 50k do you want to do a syndicate where everyone puts half a million and it becomes like five, six million?
2: I think if you lead, if you lead a syndicate because you have information that other, no, if you lead a syndicate because you have information that other people don't have, then you have an information advantage. Right. Um, I, so I think, I think that's where it works. If you're in a region where information is hard to get, um, like I think running a syndicate in the U S is really hard. Everybody has access to quite a similar information. Unless should, you pick a very unique vertical, but LATM syndicates have been really powerful, right? Middle East syndicates have been really powerful. In, in Southeast Asia, there's actually a dearth of syndicates. Uh, there's a few, and and so far, at least the ones that I I know of are doing relatively well because they, again, it's about deal flow and access to information, right? And the syndicate has power. Um, but yeah, that's that's my take. Let's do a crossover syndicate. <laughs> yes, now we're talking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> But Andrew, you didn't answer the question. So are you building more, investing more? I know you have to invest always, but which one are you doing more?
2: No, no. So the itch to build build is strong. The itch to build is strong. And I think inside, I'm going to be a builder.
1: Okay. You're going to be a
2: builder. No. uh,
3: My sense is that, I mean, uh, you always need to to have something that you are building. And whether it's big or small, um, uh, I I, I don't foresee myself transitioning into investing full-time anytime soon because... Cause, because building is, is something which gives you um, a sense about how it's like, I mean, how the young people are like, I mean, how do, how it's like managing people, working with people, et cetera, et cetera. How, what are the business problems that, that that people are facing on a daily basis? And um, and yeah, so, so always have something that you are building and, yeah. uh, and investing you can do on the side because that's not that's not a full-time job unless, un- unless, unless you manage other people's money.
2: Correct. Next topic. Let's do it.
1: Next topic or wrap up. Next topic, let's do it. For, for, for Somato, very specifically, the story is uh, July 20th, 23rd, uh, the past month, they IPO'd on the Indian Stock Exchange. They listed at 76 rupees with a 50% premium pop. Uh, it's the largest tech IPO that India has seen specifically for tech. Um, interesting, right? The, the In order to do this, they had to clean up their cap table beforehand. So Ant Group was owning like 25 to 26% of the company, which was like a $660 million raise on a $3.9 billion valuation. So before the IPO, they did another equity raise of $500 million, which I think diluted them down to uh, Ant Group down to 17%, which allowed them to IPO. I don't know the exact reasoning. Um, they started in 2008. This is like the very early stages of Asia, booming with the tech scene. Uh, Late-stage guys, obviously, Tiger Global is there, right? Uh, Fidelity, Dragon all these other kind of big guys. Uh, their current market cap after listing is around $13, $14 billion USD. As a comparable DoorDash IPO, right? Is um, they, DoorDash IPO'd in 2020 December, and they have a $64 billion market cap. Uh, Zomato, or Zomato, the, their blogger's competitor is Swiggy. Uh, in India, which raised $3.7 billion, which kind of forced them into the IPO, if I understand the story correctly, it forced them to raise a lot of money and then also do IPO faster to get more liquidity. Um, And the jury is still out, you know, if the economics makes sense, right? COVID, they dipped down, uh, didn't do well, orders dropped. uh, But as they recovered from the pandemic, you know, average order value increased, you know, family, people were ordering more for their families. And it's very similar to what we said about Grab. You know, will pandemic make it stick around? Will the economics be sticky? Is this really viable? Can you go for down the train and continue to increase the order values to make economics positive and really profitable? Um, so that being said, I don't know. I guess guys who wanted to talk about tomato, Zamato, go. go ahead. Yeah,
3: you guys talk about it. You, you chose. So let me just quickly comment um, about Tomato, uh, or tomato, whatever you call it. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, I was helping. I mean, that was twenty seventeen or twenty early twenty eighteen. I was helping a, a friend um, uh, evaluating um, Swiggy and, uh, and, and 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 I mean, of course, a signer, a whatever NDA, whatever. We we'll, we'll look at the whole on Terra rule and stuff. Um, I think the unit econo- e- economics, economics. Um, I think at that time, I can't remember whether it was positive at that time, but uh, but it looks pretty promising in the sense that uh, the 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 cost of labor uh, was was really really low, and um, and a- as a result, I mean, you you can do the calculation that when once you have sufficient density, that uh, you, that you uh, that that I mean, at least unique economics will make sense. And uh, we also look at the, the supply, and uh, you guys probably know that in India that there's a severe shortage of supply of restaurants. I mean, there's just not enough restaurants for the for the urban population. That's why you see all the all, all, all the dark kitchens and stuff. I mean, I mean, coming out. Um, but but a few years down the road, and um, I, um, I've heard lots of complaints from some investors about Somato, not really about the company's performance per se, but about lifestyle of the founder, which we're not going into too much detail. Um, but. But now, now he has IPO'd. Um, you can't so. say that and not go into detail. Yeah, you have you have to go into detail, man. Come on, a nice house. Give us know. a little bit. Give us a little bit. Nice house. Very nice house.
1: Very nice house. So he comes from a wealthy family, or this is he's using the money from
3: the company. <laughs> no, just nice house. I mean, <laughs> that's I, 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 as much to view <laughs> as, as I can okay. say, and uh, and yeah. So, but anyway, so 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 I think. Uh, I think I think I think a large tech company going for IPO is is obviously a good thing for the ecosystem because it, 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 I mean I mean when was the last time that these companies appear in the headlines on Financial Times right? <laughs> so 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 the last time I saw Swiggy was probably a year year and a half ago. So mm. so, so so that raises the profile. Uh, the thing that uh, that I think they went into Mumbai Stock Exchange right. So um so I'm not particularly familiar familiar with uh, with the stock market in India, uh, but I've Done a little bit of sort of communications with people there. Uh, I would see some similarities between the stock market in China and uh, and maybe maybe Indonesia, in the sense that there's lots of hype and um, and lots of re- retail investors joining the fray uh, in recent years. So so of course that pushes tomatoes um price up. And I know some of their key investors uh, sold half of their holding on the first day uh, as soon as they could. Um, huh. So. So, so I mean, it, 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 and I asked one of them. I mean, how do you see it? I said we already made some money, and um, and the, the market is, is seems to be highly hype driven. So, so, so the thing is that nobody could predict what is what's going to happen in three months, six month time. We might as well just pocket some money and leave a bit of um, stake so that it's just just in case it still goes up, and then we don't feel too um uh, too regretting. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean that's it's. I think that's what me and Dave were talking about before we all got together. Was it seems that their valuation on IPO seems very high um, relative to what you saw for other players in a region or or comparables, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, my 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 guess was that you know people are seeing this as a macro thing. You know, China big, Meituan big, Zomato going to be big, right? So um, that, that that seems like to be the case. That it's just you know p- people are looking at these two markets specifically and they're they're, they're giving it a premium, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I get okay to just add on to that point, right? I think the Meituan comparison, I think, is a very interesting uh, comparison. So I, I looked a little bit into this actually prior parts of our call. Um, so, uh, do you guys know what the biggest profit contribution of Meituan is? Profit, not revenue.
1: Profit contribution.
0: Yeah, out of their main line, out of their stuff? business lines hotels uh no uh yeah what is it? hotels no hotels, hotels. so hotel bookings account for 23 percent of meituan's revenue but uh are 73 or 74 percent of its profits right whereas food is 57 percent of revenue but only 19 percent of profit and they only became profitable like two like like a year or two ago on food right so i think my point here is like uh, you know it's similar to the grab question right like we use food as a lot food has to be a loss leader for this kind of business yeah, yeah. and and the it's only way trend. the only way that these these things can g- grow into their valuations or justify their valuations if they if they start adding on these um, sort of tangential uh, again super app services, which is kind of why they don't want to talk about this topic because I think it's the same. it's the, it, thesis is the same right you have a yeah, core exactly. business that loses money, you have a lot of customers and it's what else can you sell. To these people, and actually, I think it's really interesting because a lot of the global competitors have um, uh, 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 caught on to this point. So, without naming any names, but one of, if you go on to the career website of one of mm. Zomato's biggest global competitors, these guys yeah. are hiring a ton of fintech people, a ton of fintech people. So, the sorry, the where
2: English. where is this? Uh, like in in India or? Well, cr- that has to be a Delivery Hero, right? Uh, well, I, you guys, there's, this this
0: there's, there's a, this a, there's a, there's a limited universe of these, these players. You guys, yeah. It's proprietary information, so I don't want to get too much into it. But just like I said, go yeah. come the, on. Come on, look at the career sections. It's all that career section. Okay, fine, How fine, fine. fine.
3: Proprietary. Pap- pip- I mean, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fine. 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 It's it's Delivery Hero. If you go on Delivery Hero, they're hiring a bunch of like fintech developers out of Berlin, right? So yeah. I mean, they obviously have fintech aspirations. So I mean, then that's I think the same thing with with with. Everybody uh, wants to think, be a but, bank. Everyone wants to be a bank, exactly. Right. So that's the thing with Zomato is yeah. So they, if they if they can build out these ancillary services on top of their food business and use their food uh, yeah. users as as acquisition channel, then it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but then it's similar to Asia as well, right? Like, can you manage that entire process, the yeah. culture, the retention, the
3: blah 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 blah. Yeah, do you guys realize that C actually mentioned about um, about Vietnam and uh, and uh, and uh, Indonesia food delivery in their earnings call? Uh, I think, so yesterday or the day before yesterday? That was yesterday, right? What was it? What did oh, they, yeah, no, how are they doing? What did, what did they say? Yeah, I'm interested. No, no they, mentioned, they, they mentioned about uh, food delivery in Vietnam and, and uh, Indonesia. They said they've been making good progress. So, so I think it's the first time they're actually mentioning that in an earnings call.
1: I mean, yeah. they, uh, they, it's very unique for them because they have such they have access to that. I, I don't know how they, there's a crossover, but they have the user base from Garena Days. Like They are so well entrenched in, at least Vietnam. So mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any synergies, yeah. but they understand the market really I mean, well at least. And they have the right uh, talent to kind of execute on it. So I, I would totally believe that they can
2: make headwind in Vietnam, Indonesia. I'm not too sure, but yeah.
3: They're already market number one in Indonesia. In Vietnam, sorry. Vietnam, yeah,
2: Vietnam exactly. I mean, they also acquired a POS player in Thailand. They're using the POS tech across the region. Like this, this idea of vertical integration, they've been trying this out, right? And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they also get into travel bookings and they have like voucher sales at the moment. So they're going to move in multiple directions. Sorry if I'm getting very fiery about this, guys. I, I, have, I have a personal oh, vendetta so, about uh, this idea uh, of building super apps. It comes from it comes from a, a very deep place.
3: Basically, the the reason why, I, this is what, what I heard from multiple people, that the reason why Traveloka is running so fast towards IPO is that if um, if C launches uh, hotel booking before they go for IPO, uh, it's going to be tricky.
1: <laughs> They're eating everything. don't have to do anything. They just need to launch.
3: Yeah. W- one more
1: comment about the Vietnam food market. Because yeah. the Vietnam food market is very interesting because for a long time, they had a food market well before Food Panda, Vietnam MMM, and then eventually that was acquired by Food Panda later. But then even Food Panda had trouble to survive in Vietnam. They had a local player, Foodie, which took over, which shows you like the market's very like it's just there's no guarantees. So it's very fascinating that if how how a C group is actually dominating Vietnam is it through subsidies or whatever, and. Um, it, it's food. a much more robust market, food-wise, than, than a lot of other markets. I say, where it's just like one or two players just come in and they stay, right? So, mm. but anyway, mm. I'm exhausted. Yeah. So should sh- should we wrap it All up? Guys. We'll see the future of SaaS for another session. Uh, look, we, look, we ended up talking about the same thing, guys. Honestly, it's like we talked about Grab in a different way. Yeah. Well, that's why I didn't want to
0: talk about Zomato, right? Because I knew we would yeah. end up here again. Yeah. This is I knew this was going to happen. Uh, all right. Anyway, it was nice to talk to everyone again. Let's see. All right, guys, <laughs> we're
1: gonna wrap it up now. This went for too long. Somehow we just ended up back in the circle. Yeah. Uh, but next week we'll pick something
3: much more different, so we don't get back in this trap. Yeah, please, please, What's please, the- cut some the- of this,
1: Alex.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's not a trap. you looked at the Communist Party, and they the to make sure that the same message gets repeated, 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 repeated. Otherwise, people don't remember.
1: Okay. Bye. Nice. So yeah, super happy good uh, Monopoly, not make money. Yeah.